everybody, and you've all come out on the first of, oh, it's not quite the first of a few cool nights. Who's pulled out their winter coat so far? Yes, yes, me too, especially I'm finding the walks to and from the bus are a bit cold at the moment. So anyway, friends, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to the National Library. Uh, I'm Murray-Louise Ayres and it's my great privilege to be the Director General of the National Library of Australia. Now, as we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for the land that we are now privileged to call home. I'm delighted that you've been able to join us this evening uh, to hear from Meg and Tom Keneally as they offer insights into their creative partnership and their gripping historical crime se uh, series, Montserrat. Uh, Meg has worked as an editor, reporter and producer during her career, combined with more than 10 years in corporate affairs and now, this is great, a part-time scuba instructor. <laughs> I haven't got that on my CV, Meg. Tom's been publishing uh, books for 53 years, winning awards such as the Miles Franklin Award, the Booker Prize, the Royal Society of Literature Prize, and many, many more. He has written over 50 novels with recurring themes of war, peace, colonial history, and Australia. Now, Tom's played a notable part in the library's public programs over the years uh, in recognition and celebration of his contributions to Australian publishing. Um, Tom has also donated many of his personal papers, photographs and portraits to the library in the recent past. And if I could just digress a moment and take you back uh, about 10 years ago, I think, to when Tom took me to the family's um, storage shed in one of those sort of rental storage places um, so that I could have a look at the scope of the archive that needed to be transferred to the library. It was scary. <laughs> so this is an enormous archive that really does document the full breadth of Tom's writing career, his correspondence, and there's a lot in there about his actual writing processes. So I'm pleased to say that it's more or less under control here um, at the National Library, the archive, not Tom. Um, so, Meg and Tom are joined this evening by ABC 666 Radio's Louise Marr. Many of you know Louise through her love of telling true stories about real people. So, for tonight's conversation, please join me in welcoming Meg, Tom and Louise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marie-Louise, and thanks to you all for coming out tonight. It's lovely to see such a big crowd here at my favourite place in Canberra, the National Library. And uh, interesting what you say about the archives, because Montserrat, the, um, the gentleman convict, has a job in this book of sorting out some archives well, of his own in the does. cellar of, <laughs> of Government <laughs> House at uh, Parramatta, but we will get to that. Um, I think I'd, I'd really like to start by um, offering you a cup of tea, preferably <laughs> made by the um, redoubtable Irish housekeeper Hannah Mulrooney, because it sounds like the best tea ever. And um, drinking tea is such a big relationship, big part of the relationship mm. between Mrs Mulrooney and Hugh Montserrat. So I'm kind of wondering, is, was this series cooked up over multiple cups of tea? The irony is we both drink coffee. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> but we uh, both 
have known, when I was living in Dublin, I met many, many people, and Dad has known throughout his life many, many people, particularly women, who see tea as a social currency and use it as such. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the... Um, uh, the ceremonies around its preparation aren't limited to Japan. You know, you have to get things just right in, in a range of cultures, including, you know, Irish Australian. So uh, it just seemed a natural fit to <laughs> slot in there. Hugh Montserrat uh, is a gentleman convict, uh, Tom, and his crime, if you boil it down really, uh, is to make use of his natural intelligence to reach above his station in life, yes. uh, where he's supposed to be. How did this character come to you? Because you had a fair chunk of the, the first book, The Soldier's Curse, written and tucked away in your back pocket somewhere before you came to Meg with the idea of the collaboration. Uh, yes, uh, I was writing volume one of Australians and I'm now writing volume four. Every time I get near the close, someone using the excellent resources of this library in many cases produces a new biography of someone crucial. Uh, and even people who aren't crucial, like, well, you wouldn't... I mean, uh, Tony Abbott, so many biographies, so many books. But in any case, um, the, uh, uh, I was uh, writing about gentlemen convicts. Gentlemen convicts were in an in invidious situation in that the high Tories of the colony thought that they had betrayed their class by being becoming mixing with the habitual and terminal criminals of the criminal class. And you could tell they were members of the criminal class by studying their skulls, <laughs> which generally looked rather like mine, actually. <laughs> and, um, so the gentleman should have known better. And gentlemen should have known better and... Um, I was writing about two gentlemen convicts, Henry Savory, uh, who was a um, Van Diemen's Land convict, and he was in the sugar business, and he began to create fake bills on the basis of which he got a bank, bank advance. Now he'd be made chairman of the Young Liberals, but then <laughs> he was transported. And you had the same thing happen with um, uh, poor old uh, Greenway, the architect. Francis Greenway, yeah. He forged an architectural contract. He took this contract to his bank and he said, look, I've got this big contract, give me um, an advance on it. Uh, and um, uh, to get 14 years for doing that seems extreme. James Tucker, who was a convict at Port Macquarie, uh, was um, uh, he had accused his relative of um, child abuse, and his uncle it was, and his uncle was a powerful man, and sued him for criminal libel. That is the kind of libel I believe it's still on the statute books where you. Uh, got um, uh, could get both a jail sentence and have to pay uh, as well. And so James Tucker was um, the writer of one of our early novels, uh, Ralph Rashley, 
uh, and savoury in Van Diemen's Land was a writer of another novel called Quintus Servantin. And so I thought, what if you got a uh, convict who is in the lesser-known convict stations, the ones that not everyone knows about, and he has to go round uh, solving crimes. And that's where the idea came from. It was a crazy idea because until the age of 70, uh, having attempted self-destruction by a number of means, including the nearly surefire method of writing fiction, I hadn't managed it. And I thought, well, why don't I really go for broke and become a crime writer? <laughs> I, I spoke to Meg about... Meg was a journalist. I'd always admired Meg's phenomenal output. She gets up at 2 o'clock every morning and produces a many-thousand-word report. Is this true, management. you get up at 2 o'clock every morning, Meg? Coffee is my best friend, yeah. <laughs> yes. Hence the coffee and, uh, that I mentioned earlier. She produces a report for senior management at a big corporation, a sort of engulf and devour uh, corporation. And I thought, if you, could, if you could put that to work, <laughs> you know, child labour, the glories of child labour. <laughs> and so that's what happened, Meg. <laughs> so, Meg, what was your response when your dad came to you with this? You, you, did you cover crime when you were a reporter? Among other things, yeah. 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 Um, I also covered a giraffe's birthday at the zoo once. Lucky um, you. I know, it was yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, and everything in between. I was a general yeah. reporter, so I got sent out to cover just about anything. Um, but... Uh, I was very excited, very flattered and extremely scared um, because obviously he's written one or two books. He dabbles in this fiction thing. Mm. And initially he, he showed me about 30,000 words and said, look, it's rough as guts, but do with it what you want. And, of course, even his rough as guts first drafts were sublime. Uh, we were initially going to write... It's a little bit late to be a dutiful daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I want to stay in the world. My rough as guts um, is rough as guts. <laughs> you had something to work with. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I most certainly did, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and um, we were initially going to write alternating chapters, uh, but um, I tried to insert my own voice into what he'd written and sort of mould it into a more sort of two-person Thing, but I was very tentative. I kind of felt I didn't have the right to change anything that he'd written, given his, you know, vastly superior experience. Um, we showed it to our agent, and she said, "Look, it's got that very distinct Tom Kinnealy voice with something else, just sort of humming away underneath." But it's neither one thing nor mm -hmm. another. So she suggested that I start from scratch and write the first couple of drafts, and then get Dad to come in on the rewrites and sprinkle his magic Tommy dust over it. Uh, so ultimately that's what we did. I was in consultation with him every day. Um, with all of these stories we work out the plots together. That seems to, to be the way that we best work it now. We go for long bush walks and work out the plots and then I go away and uh, write the first draft or two uh, while constantly bugging Dad. And if you're going to write historical fiction, by the way, I can highly recommend being born to someone who's a walking filing cabinet of Australian <laughs> history. It's yeah, very, we share, very useful. share the research, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, uh, then Dad uh, 
comes and makes these changes which seem minor but which add about 10 layers of nuance and depth with you know a paragraph or two uh, and I'm still trying to figure out how he does that <laughs> um, uh, and, and makes more substantial changes as well so that's 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 how it's that's the the pattern that we've fallen into and that seems to be what works for us and, and we, you say you never argue we don't actually we're we're both far too passive aggressive uh, and we're, we're very temperamentally similar so the danger for us is disappearing up our own armpits by saying, I don't want you to think that just because I changed this, it means that I don't appreciate that your perspective on it. You know, yeah. we can still All be there half stuff. an hour later. Yeah. 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 We haven't had a quarrel yet, actually. Not about that. No, uh, um, there, there <laughs> have been, you know, uh, uh, quarrels over the years about other things, of course, like yes. me wearing makeup when I was 15 and so on. Yes. Uh, but. Uh, uh, not about not about books. We've had you know a few minor genial arm wrestles. Dad thinks I anthropomorphise too much. Um, <laughs> I, I tell him occasionally that he needs to learn to live with anthropomorphisation. But uh, you know that's <laughs> you that's know about turning uh, objects into particularly Mrs. Uh, uh, Mulrooney's teacups. They yes. in in the first early drafts generally. of volume of the first volume set in Port Macquarie. They nearly danced, you know. They were nearly, <laughs> it was like Fantasia. But that's no. because of Mrs Mulrooney. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, what I was saying to you earlier about Dad with a couple of slashes at the pen adding mm. depths of nuance, I, I wrote Mrs Mulrooney as having this, you know, tendency to get cranky at inanimate objects. Mm -hmm. If she was a contemporary character, she would swear at her computer, as I do. Yes. yes. Um, and uh, Dad on reading the first draft, said, why don't you say that that tendency is a result of uh, misdirected anger? Because she can't get angry at the people that she should mm. really be angry at because yes. they could recriminalise her. Yes. So she's directing it at inanimate objects. And that was the work of a few paragraphs to write, but it immediately goes to the heart of who she is rather than being just a character quirk. So that's, you know, that's an example of how he's able to you know, tweak these things and, and just deepen them so much. That, you know, a mark of a master of his craft is, 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 you know, you can always tell when someone's achieved mastery because they make it look easy and he mm. makes it look easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the first time, obviously, that you've, you've written about convicts. And back in the, the mid-60s, yeah. Bring Larks and Heroes. Yes, that was I'm a mm. bit of a convict freak. Yeah. That, and then that, I found out we had a few in the family and then I found out that my wife had a couple of very interesting ones. Yes. Mm. And, and so um, Meg's great-great-grandmother was, was actually... In the female factory. In the female factory. factory. Yeah. This new book is set yeah. in the female factory in Parramatta. What was the female factory? Oh, uh, well, it was um, a number of things. They couldn't figure out what they wanted it to be. They wanted to keep the women away from the men. And they wanted them because to... Because of the gender imbalance, yeah, huge gender. Two, uh, seven to, to two or, or something yeah. like that, yeah. Uh, and they wanted um, the place to pay for itself. So, you know, Hence they had factory, to... factory, they had to make things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, when we were talking to Genevieve this morning, you would have heard a number of listeners called in and said, you know, it sounds like a place that makes Where females. Where women were run up. Um, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and it does, but, that, you know, they, they, they thought that they might as well bung these women away behind some walls and get them weaving and spinning and so forth. Uh, it was a marriage bureau. 
where uh, people who were going bush, men who were going bush, rocked up and did, you know, colonial speed dating, uh, spoke to the woman of their choice for an hour or so, and then they'd get married. And she looked all right. Off yeah. They, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, off they'd go. Um, married at first sight. Yeah. <laughs> Georgian. Exactly. Yeah, style. Yes, yes, and uh, and it was a, an employment bureau, and it was a place where women who misbehaved in the wider world were sent. Uh, they were sent there for infractions as minor as there. I'm quoting now. There was one woman who was sent there for overuse of her risible muscles to the annoyance of her mistress. She was smiling, smiling too, too much. much. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, the, the murder victim in your first book, mm. The Soldier's Curse, was an innocent, someone who really didn't deserve to die. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I've, I've got to be really careful because I know that um, some of you would have read the first book and perhaps even the second book already, but others of you may be about to embark on the wonderful journey that is these books. So I'm going to be careful about the plot. Um, but anyway, I can say that this is a person who didn't deserve to die, um, but the evil, evil man who meets his grisly end in The Unmourned in the second book uh, is just that. He is totally unmourned. Yep. In some quarters, his killing is positively celebrated as well mm. it should be. And he was the uh, superintendent of the mm. female factory at Parramatta in your book. His name was uh, Robert Church. Mm. Was he based on a, a real superintendent? Were any of them that dreadful? Yeah, or I'm sorry. No, no, no. You, 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 you're you're uh, allowed to talk too, Dad. <laughs> Well, uh, Belle was bad. Uh, there was also a matron who had a nephew who abused the women. Uh, but the women were in a situation, when it comes to power, they drastically lacked power. Um, a superintendent could. This isn't how it happened every time. But if a woman rejected the advances of the superintendent... She could end up in the third-class women's prison, which was the lowest level, less freedom, less uh, rations, um, a, a more debased form of clothing, and so and greater, greater security in locking up. Uh, and um, there were um, men like Church, and the great problem was that. Half the community... Uh, this period of history is very interesting mm. because you had the two strands of British thought. The high Tory thought uh, that considered that there's a criminal class irremediable and that criminals could never take part in a civilised society. And then you had the uh, Whig progressives like some of the governors, including Macquarie. Uh, and, um, uh, but the Tories uh, were very powerful at this stage. Uh, the Tories were in power in, um, in Britain. Castlereagh, Bathurst, uh, Lord Liverpool, actually a pack of mongrels who made George Brandis look like the Christmas fairy. <laughs> uh, and... Um, Half of our rivers are named after them, but anyhow, the, um, uh, 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 so there was uh, this conflict of uh, 
belief about what the women were. And the high Tory attitude was they were abandoned women. And any protest they made, uh, and they did have a riot in 1827, uh, was simply part of their criminal and depraved natures. Nothing was expected of them, and yet, uh, in fact, um, if you look at the individual um, records, they were negotiating their way out of this situation. Most of them became Australian matriarchs. They weren't expected to be, but they became Australian matriarchs. When they did riot, because the superintendent made them shave each other's hair off uh, and, uh, and there were also rationing mm. issues. When they did riot, it was considered part of their depraved and criminal nature mm. and they were worse than the men, you know. And so, it wasn't just the... It was the churchmen too, or some of the churchmen mm. who were around at the time. There's a, an odious character called the Reverend Horace Bulmer, mm. who uh, unfortunately makes a reappearance in the second book. Oh, yes. And, um, yes. and anyone who knows a bit about that time of Australian history knows the name Samuel Marston. Mm. And uh, Samuel Marston referred to convicts at the time he was around as um, the invincible depravity of the convict. So mm. that's yes. that same idea again, yeah. that, that if you're a convict or even the children of convicts, there's no hope for you. You yes, know, that's right. You're lost yeah. to civilised society. Yes, yeah. You're an under, doomed to be an underclass. And Samuel Marsden was on the um, management committee of the female factory. So he was responsible for the spiritual welfare of these women mm. while deploring them at, at every turn. In fact, uh, I don't know if anyone's heard of the prison reformer Elizabeth Fry, who used yes. to operate out of Newgate. One of her um, offsiders a woman called Charlotte Anley came to Australia to visit the female factory as Marston's guest and she found that uh, a significant number of women had converted to Catholicism so they didn't have to go to Marston's Sunday lectures. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they walk a fine line, don't they, the, the characters mm. in your book. Um, Hugh Montserrat is a gentleman convict but he's committed a second offence which is why he ends up in the first book in Port Macquarie. Like, like Tucker, the author of Ralph Rashley, Tucker, his crime is borrowed from Tucker. Ah, he, yes. Uh, Tucker had a girlfriend in Parramatta yeah. and he visited her from Windsor and for that he was sent for secondary punishment for some years. Because he was Port out of Quarry. his he was defined out of his area. District. Yes. You know, something that you'd have to be very narky to, uh, to um, come down upon. Mm. But uh, they were uh, at, so Montserrat is in Port Macquarie, and then he does the good work in Port Macquarie. He solves that mystery. He's back with his ticket of leave, mm. but he's he knows he's on a razor's edge. Yes, throughout. walking walking that fine line because if he does something wrong again, even though he has his ticket of leave, he can be thrown back onto the chain gang where, uh, on, the, on the road gang, where he was before and where he's decided that he would not survive mm. if he was there again. But even someone like um, Mrs Mulrooney, who is 
in all sense and purposes, free, mm -hmm. there are things in her past which emerge wonderfully yes. in the second book which she would well prefer to keep secret, mm. uh, but there is an attempt at one stage to blackmail her. Yes. So this, this, this line people are walking to try to make their way mm. in this strange new society. Yeah. Yes. It's, uh, I, I mean, it must have been very odd to wash up here and realise that you were essentially on Mars and then to come to psychological terms with that, even try to reinvent yourself, and then, as sometimes happened, having a malignancy from the old words world slide under the waves and join you yes. at this remove must have been extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. When, you, when you write historical fiction, obviously, mm. you know, um, Tom's been doing yes. it for years, uh, the research that you need to do, but there, there is a danger that because you know so much, you can pack so much in, so then it starts mm. to read like... Um, a history book rather than yes. a novel, a page-turning novel. I mean, you've managed to avoid that, but I wonder how you do because you know so much. How do you know what to put in, but at times, more importantly, what to what to leave out? I, I, I guess we always feel that if it doesn't advance the story, you have to ask yourself whether it advances the story or not, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. And if it isn't salient to um, a character, yeah, you've got to sacrifice it. Uh, yeah. But... That, that relationship between the facts, the his salient historical event and the characters, um, that becomes smoother uh, after two or three rewrites. You just get your daughter, poor kid, to do <laughs> two or three rewrites. Yeah. And the more she rewrites, the more it slots in and becomes germane to the events. There um, is a description of um, the women in um, in the unmourned mm -hmm. when they riot, mm -hmm. which is taken from a fictional uh, newspaper at yes. the time. But I understand, Meg, that it actually comes yes. from a real newspaper account of the day. Can That's you tell right. us about that? Yeah, so that came from a lot of the research that we did for this. When you're researching historical fiction, you're not only focused on dates and so on. Uh, what is really gold is what people ate, what they wore, how they spoke, how they felt. And that kind of thing you can frequently get from newspapers and journals. And if anybody is looking to do that kind of research, go to Trove, which is run by the National Library of Australia, and you can type in whatever you are looking for and, and, and come up with uh, newspaper articles and a variety of other sources on it. And that's how I did a lot of the research for this, through Trove. And through Trove, I found an article, a report on the 1827 riots where the women, uh, as Dad said, due to head shaving and uh, restriction of rations, decided that they'd had enough. They burst out of the factory gates. Um, they had been so demonised in the press previously. And another article that I got from Trove said that they were more determined in their vicious career than the men. Um, uh, they had been so demonised that the shopkeepers of Parramatta, according to this report on the riot, were so scared of the women coming into their shops that they were pelting their goods out onto the street <laughs> so that the women would pick yeah. them up and, and, go, and, yeah. and leave them alone. And uh, almost as good as overuse of the risible muscles is what the journalist reporting on the riot in this article called the women, he referred to them as Amazonian banditti. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's absolute gold. So you had yeah. to... 
put that in the book. Yes. Naturally, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and there is a there is a later <laughs> article which relates to the murder as well, which is obviously entirely fictional because it's a report on the fictional events of the mm. of the book. But again, um, I relied heavily on just going through newspaper reports from Trove just to get a sense of the language of the day and how that sort of thing would have been, mm. you know, constructed. How did you come up with the idea? for the way in which the murder was carried out, and I'm talking in particular about the, uh, about the weapon, mm. you'll see on the front of the book, it's, it's, it's very small, but it's an, it's an awl. And um, an awl is a, a tool that is, is used for, in leatherwork to make, mm. to make holes, but um, it's got a very sharp point on it. And, um, and I did ask my partner whether we had one floating around the garage so I could bring it in to show people because I'm quite obsessed with the idea of the awl. Um, <laughs> and, and we didn't, sadly. But I found this picture, so if you can see it. Like, it's, it's horrible. And, um, and this type of instrument is what ends up in the eye of the... Um, yes, it's like a screwdriver, but, but with very a point. pointy, yeah yeah, 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 smaller and pointy. Uh, ends up in the eye of the uh, aforementioned superintendent, yes, Robert Church. Who came up with that? Um, who, who was it? Uh, that, that I was probably been. you. Oh, I, I thought the psychopathic bits were you. <laughs> <laughs> uh. My my husband suggested that we call it. Uh, it's all in your head, but for some reason, <laughs> the publishers all in go your brain. For that. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. astounding the the write, writers <laughs> when you get into that writing groove. This inner psychopath does come out. Yeah, yeah, it's and really quite. Scary. You're always looking for something more and more remarkable, and of course, I have to say, um, Bell deserved to be murdered. the The government was in an interesting situation in those days. It's the same situation that the commandant is in in Book One. There's a liberal commandant who is the husband. Mm of the murder victim in the first book in Port Macquarie. And his second in command is Dastardly. a high Tory... Yes. Yes. Captain you know, Diamond. ...really yes. quite monstrous yeah. person. And uh, I'm not saying all high Tories are quite monstrous, mm -hmm. yes, although you right. one look at Corey Bernardi and you think it has to be proved <laughs> otherwise. But um, anyhow, it... Uh, the, 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 you had this tension in the colony between those two classes of administrator. And if you had a liberal-minded administrator and a sub-person who was far more brutal, you couldn't send an email back to the depot and say, please bring us someone a bit nicer. Um, you were stuck with that person and the administration was stuck with the... Uh, bloke mm. who ran the female factory, even though... And uh, Meg can tell you a story which is in the book and is true about the woman... The woman who, who dies. Yes, so yes. yeah. yeah, tell us that story. Yeah, Meg. well, this really struck me when I first read about it. Her real name was Marianne Hamilton. She, her story is sort of recounted in there um, fictionally, but... Uh, the, the various superintendents were shaving off bits of the women's rations and selling them. Uh, so she was starving. She uh, ate the feed for the geese uh, because the geese ate better than the women. And she ate weeds. And in punishment for that, she was put into solitary confinement 
uh, tethered to the ground with stakes and ropes. When she became wild, she was put in a straitjacket and unsurprisingly died of starvation. Um, there was an inquest into her death and the administrative response was to increase the rations of the superintendent, not the women. Oh, so the superintendent, so he'd be less tempted to steal. Right. So, yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's just appalling. Yeah. And also there's a, a horrible case in... Um, in the unmourned too about a psychological abuse by this horrible superintendent mm. Robert Church of a woman who's again we won't go into details but something dreadful happened in her past yes um, which he constantly reminds her of yes. and makes her feel guilty for so uh, yeah. it's yes. it's appalling torture well yeah and and and, the, and there is some evidence that they that they did psychologically abuse the the women and why not they were abusing them in every other way mm. uh uh, the head shaving incident that Dad mentioned earlier, um, it's its kind of hard to overstate how important these women's... Uh, these In what high esteem they held their hair, it was the only thing they had. Mm. It was a mark of their femininity. And, and also we're not talking about the kind of shaving that's done for the world's greatest shave, where, no. it's, where it's done nicely. This was yeah. done brutally. Brutally, yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, so to have your head shaved in public was the worst of humiliations and uh, one superintendent decided it would be a good idea just to shave everyone's head and have friends do it to friends, mm. which is, you know, was just the last yeah. straw for a great many of them. So, you know, I mean, you, you uh, mash a, a group of souls like this behind a, behind a tall wall and you demonise them in the press and you can do pretty much whatever you like. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, it wouldn't happen now. Would it? <laughs> <laughs> there is such a there's such great light and shade mm. in these books. I think that's why why people are loving them so much. And uh, it, it's not all horrible. It's not all no. the darkest aspects of our history. But before we move on, I do want to dwell on a, a particularly mm. dark moment in the first book, mm. and it's the the, the flogging. Ah. And um, and you wrote about a dreadful flogging in the book I mentioned earlier that won you the Miles Franklin. Years ago, when I, yes. I had hair then. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, we, we hear, you hear about flogging. You grow up as a child. You, you know that convicts mm. were flogged. But the way in which that convict was flogged by a completely sadistic, slightly mm. crazed person who had authority over him um, is dreadful. But there's also the bit at the end where um, his wounds are spat on by the mm. person who did um, did the flogging and this mm. ultimately leads to this man's death because of the infection. Mm. And uh, I hear that that was your idea, Meg. The it was. Uh, 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 mm. I suppose the psychopathic bits really are mine. Mm. And, and the weird thing is I wasn't prepared for this when I started writing but Dad tells me it's re reasonably common. Sometimes the characters just go off and do their own thing without any reference mm. to you at all or it feels like they do. Yes. And I didn't know that Diamond was going to spit in the wound until... I actually wrote the line and then I mm. stepped back and went, oh, you're a psychopath, okay. Uh, he was supposed to be a little bit more ambiguous and then at that moment I realised he was actually quite a nasty mm. character and I thought, well, we'd better go back and, scram uh, and sprinkle some more psycho dust on you in the preceding yes. chapters. Uh, and uh, I sent that, I cut that scene out and sent it to Dad and said, is this too extreme? And he said, no, it's a... It's Ripper, <laughs> as, as you know, as, as 
as much psychopathy as we can mm. get. That's all great. Um, I was very pleased to see the end of Captain Diamond as he sailed off on a ship, and uh-huh. I hope I hope he's uh-huh. I hope he's uh-huh. not going to turn up. He is uh, going he to is, come he'll back. Right. back. He'll be back. He's not in the next book. The he's not in the next book. He's probably we're spared from him in the Unmourned, but yeah, you, you are, yeah. you are, right. but uh, not forever. Right. Okay. Mm. Thank he'll you. Be back. Thank you. Thank you for that warning. <laughs> Port Macquarie, um, as a convict settlement, I didn't mm. know Port Macquarie was a convict yes. settlement. Yeah, they've got very little built environment. Yeah, but it, but yeah. It, but it's interesting because um, when my dad read the book, he said, "Oh, I knew a, I knew that because um, a bloke he knows who used to drive an excavator told him he was doing work up there. <coughs> excuse me, some years mm. ago, and they uncovered some aspect of the early convict settlement down near the water where I think ships yeah. used to come Probably. ashore. Yeah. And we were both saying, yeah, who knew? But mm. you um, grew up at Kempsey, Tom. So did you know?" Well, I started out at Kempsey. I can see yeah. my handsome cousin here. Uh, and we were living in Warha. I remember my handsome cousin Patsy's fifth birthday. Yes. We're living in Warhope. We're all put in a bus and taken to the opening of the Catholic Church in Port Macquarie. Uh, and Port Macquarie was a very much a fishing, a small village. And Warhope was the Venice of the North, <laughs> and Kempsey was the Florence of the North. Uh, and uh, um, so I was always interested in Port Macquarie, and recently I wrote a thing in The Australian about a magical place called Crescent Head. Well, there was an early track from 1830, there was a track from Port Macquarie Convict Settlement to Crescent Head. And a lot of convicts settled there um, as fishermen. So it was a great place to hide out from authority. So you always knew and that so Port Macquarie... so I was always kind yeah, of interested in, yeah. in the idea of Port Macquarie. As a, and you do, beneath the houses, uh, a, a, a lot of high-rise. Uh, they've had to have an excavation done for archaeology... And you do might come have been a- the one your dad was talking about. Yeah. Yes, mm. and you do come across the footings, the foundations of convict huts, drainage, um, and so on. And there, some of those foundations you can see uh, with convict brick under the foundations, under the uh, entertainment centre. The glass there, house. The civic, the glass house. The glass The house civic centre. So um, it, it's... Um, and the next book is in Mariah Island, and a future book is going to be Governor Darling thought that educated convicts were getting it too easily. He was a high Tory, you know, and um, he decided he'd found a special convict station for educated convicts to make sure that they went through the tough life. And it was at Wellington. And they called it, other convicts called it the Valley of the Swells. And we're going to have a convict, uh, one of the books is going to be in the Valley of the Swells because it's not a well-known no, place either. No, And you're planning 12 books in the series, mm. aren't you? Yeah, so well, there are plenty of obscure... And we're going to go to Norfolk Island mm. too, it's, uh, or Megas. Which may or the may Wonder not Child be where Michael Diamond comes <laughs> Uh, so I want to talk a bit, because um, in, in a few moments I'll open up the floor to questions. So if, if you've got a question saved up, um, 
keep hold of it because you'll have an opportunity soon. But I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between Hugh Montserrat and, um, and Hannah Mulrooney, mm-hmm. his, his housekeeper, his friend, the brains behind the operation, yes. you, you could say. And theirs is not a love interest. There's a, a, a difference in age. And there, is a love, there are love interests mm. in, the, in the book. Um, mm-hmm. We have Sophia in the first book and... I'm getting the feeling that a uh, love interest is developing yes. in in the in the second book, so I'm very excited to um, to see where that goes too. But tell me a bit more about this this really special relationship between these two unlikely people who end up on the other side of the world. Well, you together. Crea- you created the characters, Dad, so you should. Well, Hugh is the uh, educated convict who still thinks vainly at the core of his being that he's quite clever. Hmm. But he's not as clever as Mrs Mulrooney, though she is illiterate and attempts uh, literacy classes in book two, Mm. go a certain distance but no further. And I've always been fascinated about how uh, literacy, uh, you know, in places like Africa uh, is not a measure of how intelligent people are. Uh, the the how powerful um, the in, intuitive reasoning, lateral reasoning, how powerful myth at, uh, and uh, the oral tradition is with these people. So I wanted to have a non-literate person and a woman without whom uh, Montserrat can finds it very hard to solve his crimes. In mm. book three, it gets harder and harder for him to solve the crime in Tasmania, which is the mm. next book, uh, without Mulrooney. And uh, so in book one, he's a convict and she's the housekeeper. She's done her mm. time. He's still doing his time. Mm. Now he's got a ticket of leave in book two and she's his housekeeper in um, Parramatta. She is quite capable of interfering in any relationship with women of which she, between Montserrat and women, which she disapproves of. Mm. And she disapproves of Sophia Stark, the woman of whom Hugh, the, the woman Hugh was visiting when he was caught and sent to Port Macquarie, the woman of whom Hugh reunion Hugh dreams of. And, of course, reunion is never quite everything it's cracked up to be. There may even be some people in the audience who remember the reunions at the end of World War II and how they were ambiguous because the wife had become a different person and the husband had become a different person when they came back from the the war. And... um, So Mrs Mulrooney is quite prepared to fish in troubled waters and to push (laughs) icebergs around and to sink titanics of affection (laughs) if it's required. And um, she does. So that's the the connection between the two. She comes, as you find out, from an event in Ireland Mm. which produced a lot of Irish convicts to Australia to the point that Governor King said they're all talking Irish and they're, I'm surrounded by them and he got quite paranoid about it. Serves and him right. That's her 
that's her origins. Mm. Uh, she was involved in a great social upheaval that produced a great number of convicts uh, in early Australia, in the early mm. 1800s. And um, so that's the story of um, Mulrooney. And, of course, like many a convict, her drink is tea. Mm. And mm. she has a mastery. Is a, Mastery is one of the words that haven't succumbed to feminism because there isn't a... You can't say mistressy over... Uh, uh, there's got to be a word that we can use, but for the time being, let's say mastery over tea is extremely uh, potent. <laughs> well, you've brought us really quite back full, full circle, and um, I know that you love writing about um, Mrs Mulroney. I do. She's yes. my favourite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's my favourite. No, she's fantastic. About. And the, the relationship between them changes, the power mm. shifts. Yeah, and so that's at the right. end of the book there, again, which we won't go into, but... Uh, the, and the event happens I, that makes it shift yes, again. Yes, yes. I remember yeah. there was a woman we knew in Dublin. Meg worked there for quite a time. And <laughs> this is how we know the Mulroonies of the world. This woman, Meg was renting a flat with a, with a fella called... Tommy McDonnell, and they weren't boyfriend and girlfriend. Just, they the were flat just yes. And so uh, this woman decided she'd make sure that Tommy O'Donnell, be, under no circumstances, would presume anything. <laughs> and she said, Tommy, I've known you since you were a little boy, and you're always a sly gobshite. So if there's any slyness, and if, if you get involved in talk with this girl, you'll have to answer to me. <laughs> the poor fellow. You're always a little gobshite, and that's Mrs Mulrooney. That is Mrs Mulrooney. <laughs> and uh, can we expect, as much as, as we love the books and we can't wait for the series to unroll, uh, there is talk of a possible television series? Yeah, uh, the December Media, who make the, uh, the Dr Blake Mysteries, who, uh, which should never have been taken, you know, it's a, it's, it's, um, it's a shame that... Uh, the ABC sometimes does some yeah, interesting um, things, yes. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to... Uh, it's OK. You they know. did the right thing in employing but, you, though, Louis. Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, anyway, they make the Dr Blake yes. mysteries at the moment and they, they are looking to... Um, yes. Uh, to uh, make this into a series as well and to use the stories as jumping off point to a sort of a, a more, you know, a longer, a longer, more episodic series. They're looking at it as sort of like Deadwood but without the, the swearing in, in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we, we look forward to that too. Yeah, and, oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, and 